Part two, chapter one, part two. Of the roll call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter one, part two. Three. She was just closing the side gate leading to the studio when he drove up. He recognised her face over the top of the gate. At the first glance it seemed to be absolutely unchanged. The same really beautiful lips, the same nose, the same look in the eyes. Had a decade passed by her and left no trace? He lost his nerve for an instant and brought the car to a standstill with less than his usual adroitness. She hesitated. I was coming to see you he called out hastily, boyishly, not in the least measuring his effects. He jumped from the car and said in a lower, more intimate tone, I've only this minute heard about Mr. Hayne. I'm awfully sorry. I thought I'd come along at once. How nice of you, she replied, quite simply and naturally, with a smile. Do come in. The tension was eased. She pulled at the gate which creaked. He then saw plainly the whole of her figure. She was dressed in black, and wore what the newspaper advertisement called a matron's coat. The decade had not passed her by and left no trace. She had been appointed to a share in the mysterious purpose. Her bust, too, was ampler. Only her face, rather pale like the face of Lois, was unaltered in its innocent contours. He felt that he was blushing. He had no instinctive jealousy nor resentment. It did not appear strange to him that this woman in the matron's coat was the girl he had passionately kissed in that very house. And indeed, the woman was not the girl. The connection between the woman and the girl had snapped. Nevertheless, he was extremely self-conscious. But not she. And in his astonishment he wondered at the secretiveness of London. His house and hers were not more than half a mile apart, and yet, in eleven years, he had never set eyes on her house. Nearly always on leaving his house, he would go up Elm Park Gardens and turn to the right. If he was not in the car, he would never turn to the left. Occasionally he had flown past the end of the grove in the car. Not once, however, had he entered the grove. He lived in Chelsea, and she lived in Chelsea, but not the same Chelsea. His was not the Chelsea of the studios and the King's Road. They had existed close together, side by side, for years and years, and she had been hidden from him. As they walked towards the studio door, she told him that they had buried her father a week ago, and that they were living in the studio, and had already arranged to let the lower part of the house. She had the air of assuming that he was aware of the main happenings in her life, only a little belated in the knowledge of her father's death. She was quite cheerful. He pretended to himself to speculate as to the identity of her husband. He would not ask, And who is your husband? All the time he knew who her husband was. It could be no other than one man. She opened the studio door with a latch key. He was right. At the table, Mr. Prince was putting sheets of etching paper to soak in a porcelain bath. Well, 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 exclaimed Mr. Prince warmly, not flustered, not a bit embarrassed, and not too demonstrative. He came forward, delicately drying the tips of his fingers on a rag, and shook hands. His hair was almost white, his thin, benevolent face amazingly lined. His voice had a constant little vibration. Yet George could not believe that he was an old man. He only heard today about father, and he's called at once, said Marguerite, 
isn't it just like him? The last phrase surprised and thrilled George. Did she mean it? Her kind, calm, ingenuous face showed that obviously she meant it. It is, said Mr Prince seriously. Very good of you, old man. After some talk about Mr Haym and about old times and about changes, during which Marguerite took off her matron's coat and Mr Prince gently hung it up for her, they all sat down near to one another and near the unlighted stove. The studio seemed to be precisely as of old, except that it was very clean. Marguerite, in a high-backed wicker chair, began slowly to remove her hat, which she perched behind her on the chair. Mr Prince produced a tin of gold flake cigarettes. "'And so you're living in the studio?' said George. "'We have the two rooms at the top of the house, of course,' answered Mr Prince, glancing at the staircase. "'I don't know whether it's quite the wisest thing with all those stairs. "'You see how we're fixed,' he glanced at Marguerite. "'But we had a fine chance to let the house, and in these days it's as well to be cautious.' Marguerite smiled happily and patted her husband's hand. "'Of course it's the wisest thing,' she said. "'Why, what's the matter with these days?' George demanded. "'How's the work?' "'Oh,' said Mr Prince in a new tone, "'I've one or two things that might interest you.' He displayed some prints and chatted of his labours. He was still etching. He would die etching. This was the etcher of European renown. He referred to the Vienna acquisition as though it was an affair of a few weeks ago. He disposed of an etching to Stockholm, and mentioned that he exhibited at the international show in Rome. He said that his things were attracting attention at a gallery in Bond Street. He displayed catalogues and press cuttings. These are jolly fine, said George enthusiastically as he examined the prints on his knee. I'm glad you like them, said Mr Prince, pleased. I think I've improved. But in spite of his European renown, Mr Prince had remained practically unknown. His name would not call forth the Oh, yes, of recognition from the earnest frequenter of fashionable exhibitions who takes pride in his familiarity with names. The etchings of Prince were not subscribed for in advance. He could not rank with the stars, Cameron, Yohedbone, Le Gros, Brangwyn. Probably he could command not more than two or three guineas for a print. He had never been the subject of a profusely laudatory illustrated article in The Studio. With his white hair, he was what in the martyrs esteemed a failure. He knew it. With all, he had a notable self-respect and a notable confidence. There was no timidity in him, even if his cautiousness was excessive. He possessed sagacity, and he had used it. He knew where he was. He had something substantial up his sleeve. There was no wistful appeal in his eye, as of a man who hopes for the best and fears the worst. He could meet dealers with a firm glance, for throughout life he had subjugated his desires to his resources. His look was modest but independent, and Marguerite had the same look. Hello, cried George, I see you've got that here. He pointed to Celia Egg's portrait of herself as Bonnie Prince Charlie. Yes, said Marguerite, she insisted on me taking it when she gave up painting. Gave up painting? Very good, isn't it? said Mr Prince gravely. Pity she ever did give up painting, I think he added in a peculiar tone. Yes, it is, George agreed insincerely, for the painting now seemed to him rather tenth-rate. But what on earth did she stop painting for? Margaret replied with reserve. Oh, didn't you know? She's quite gone in for this suffragette business. 
No one ever sees her now, not even her people. Been in prison, said Mr. Prince, sardonically disapproving. I always said she'd end in that kind of thing, didn't I, Margie? You did, dear, said Marguerite, with wifely eagerness. These two respected not only themselves, but each other. The ensuing conversation showed that Mr. Prince was somewhat disgusted with the mundane movement, and that Marguerite was his disciple. They were more and more leaving the world alone. Their self-sufficiency was increasing with the narrow regularity of their habits. They seldom went out, and when they did, they came home the more deeply convinced that all was not well with the world, and that they belonged to the small remnant of the wise and the sane. George was in two minds about them, or rather about Mr. Prince. He secretly condescended to him, but on the other hand, he envied him. The man was benevolent. He spent his life in the creation of beauty, and he was secure, surely an ideal existence. Yes, George wished that he could say as much for himself. Marguerite, completely deprived of ambition, would never have led any man into insecurity. He had realised already that afternoon that there were different degrees of success. He now realised that there were different kinds of success. Well, he rose suddenly, I must be off, I'm very busy. I suppose you are, said Mr Prince. Untrue to assert that his glance was never wistful. It was ever so slightly wistful then. George comprehended that Mr Prince admired him and looked up to him after all. My town hall is being opened tomorrow. So I saw, said Mr Prince. I congratulate you. They knew a good deal about him, where he lived, the statistics of his family and so on. He picked up his hat. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your coming, said Marguerite, gazing straight into his eyes. Rather, said Mr Prince. They were profoundly flattered by the visit of this bird of paradise, but they did not urge him to stay longer. As he was leaving, the door already open, George noticed a half-finished book-cover design on a table. So you're still doing these binding designs? He stopped to examine. Husband and wife, always more interested in their own affairs than in other people's, responded willingly to his curiosity. George praised, and his praise was greatly esteemed. Mr Prince talked about the changes in trade bindings, which were all for the worse. The bright spot was that Marguerite's price for a design had risen to twenty-five shillings. This improvement was evidently a source of genuine satisfaction to them. To George, it seemed pathetic that a rise after vicissitudes of four shillings in fourteen years should be capable of causing them so much joy. He and they lived in absolutely different worlds. This is the last I shall let her do for a long time, observed Mr Prince. I shouldn't have let her do this one. But the doctor, who is a friend of ours, said there wouldn't be any harm. And, of course, it's always advisable to break a connection as little as possible. You never know. George smiled, returning their flattery. You aren't going to tell me that that matters to you. Mr Prince fixed George with his eye. When the European war starts in earnest, I think most of us will need all we've been able to get together. What European war? asked George, with a touch of disdain. You don't mean to say that this Sarajevo business will lead to a European war? No, I don't, said Mr Prince, very firmly. Germany's diplomatists are much too clever for that. They're clever enough to find a better excuse. But they will find it, and soon. George saw that Mr Prince, having opened up a subject which apparently was dear to him, 
had to be handled with discretion. He guessed at once from the certainty and the emotion of Mr. Prince's phrases that Mr. Prince must have talked a lot about a European war. So he mildly replied, Do you really think so? Do I think so? My dear fellow, you have only to look at the facts. Austria undoubtedly annexed Bosnia at Germany's instigation. Look at what led to Algeciras. Look at Agadir. Look at the increase in the German army last July. And look at the special levy, the thing's as clear as day. Mr. Prince now seemed to be a little angry with George, who had moved into the doorway. I'll tell you what I think, said George, with the assurance with which, as a rule, he announced his opinions. We are Germany's only serious rival. It's us she's up against. She can only fight us on the sea. If she fought us now on the sea, she'd be wiped out. That's admitted. In ten years, if she keeps on building, she might have a chance. But not now. Not yet. And she knows it. George did not mention that he had borrowed the whole weighty argument from his stepfather. But he spoke with finality, and was rather startled when Mr. Prince blew the whole weighty argument into the air with one scornful, pitying exhalation. Mr. Prince said, Nothing in it, nothing in it. It's our alliances that will be the ruin of us. We shall be dragged into war. If Germany chooses to fight on land, everybody will have to fight on land. When she gets to Paris, what are we going to do about it? We shall be dragged into war. It's the damnable alliances that Sir Edward Grey has led us in for. Mr. Prince fixed George afresh. That man ought to be shot. What do we want with alliances? Have you heard Lord Roberts? George admitted weakly, as if ashamed, that he had not. Well, you should. Oh, yes, Marguerite ingenuously put in. Alfred's been very strong on the European war ever since he heard Lord Roberts speak at Chelsea Town Hall. George then understood the situation. Mr. Prince, through the hazard of a visit to Chelsea Town Hall, had become obsessed by a single idea, an idea which his natural apprehensions had well nourished. A common phenomenon. George had met before the man obsessed by one idea, with his crude reasoning, his impatience, and his flashing eye. As for himself, he did not pretend to be an expert in politics. He had no time for politics, but he was interested in them, and held strong views about them, and among his strongest views was the view that the crudity of the average imperialist was noxious, and a source of real danger. That man ought to be shot. Imagine such a remark. He felt that he must soothe Mr. Prince as he would soothe a child. And he did so, with all the tact acquired at municipal committee meetings in the North. His last impression, on departure, was that Mr. Prince was an excellent and most lovable fellow, despite his obsession. Glad to see you at any time, said Mr. Prince with genuine cordiality, critically and somewhat inimically assessing the car, which he referred to as she. Marguerite had remained in the studio. She was wonderful. She admired her husband too simply, and she was too content, but she had marvellous qualities of naturalness, common sense in demeanour, realism, and placidity. Thanks to her remarkable instinct for taking things for granted, the interview had been totally immune from constraint. It was difficult, and she had made it seem easy. No fuss, no false sentiment. And she looked very nice, very interesting, quite attractive in her mourning and in her expectancy. A fine couple. Unassuming, of course, narrow, opinionated. He surmised that the last days of the late Mr. Hame had been disciplined. But no fools either, and fundamentally decent. While condescending to them, he somehow envied them.
but he knew what the opinion of Lois about them would be. 4. After a period of shallow sleep, he woke up in the morning factitiously refreshed as the train was rumbling slowly over the high-level bridge. The sun blinked full in his eyes when he looked out through the trellis work of the bridge. Far below, the river was tinged with the pale blue of the sky. Big ships lay in the river as if they had never moved and never could move. A steamer, in process of painting, with her sides lifted above the water, gleamed in irregular patches of brilliant scarlet. A lively tug passed downstream, proud of her early rising, and, smaller even than the tug, a smack, close-hauled, bowed to the puffs of the light breeze. Farther away, the lofty chimneys sent their scarves of smoke into the air, and the vast skeletons of incipient vessels could be described through webs of staging. The translucent freshness of the calm scene was miraculous. It divinely intoxicated the soul, and left no squalor and no ugliness anywhere. Then, as the line curved, came the view of the city beneath its delicate canopy of mist. The city was built on escarpments, on ridges, on hills, and sagged here and there into great hollows. The serrated silhouette of it wrote romance upon the sky, and the contours of the naked earth beyond lost themselves grandly in the mystery of the north. The jutting Custom House was a fine piece of architecture. From the 1840s it challenged grimly the modern architect. On his hasty first visit to the city, George had noticed little save that Custom House. He had seen a slatternly provincial town, large and picturesque, certainly, but with small sense of form or dignity. He had decided that his town hall would stand quite unique in the town. But soon the city had imposed itself upon him, and taught him the rudiments of humility. It contained an immense quantity of interesting architecture of various periods which could not be appreciated at a glance. It was a hoary place. It went back to the Romans and further. Its fragmentary walls had survived through seven centuries, its cathedral through six, its chief churches through five. It had the most perfect Norman keep within two hundred miles. It had ancient halls, mansions, towers, markets and jail and to these the Victorian Edwardian age had added museums, law courts, theatres, such astonishing modernities as swimming baths, powerhouses, joint-stock banks, lending libraries and art schools, and whole monumental streets and squares from the design of a native architect, without whose respectable name no history of British architecture could be called complete. George's Town Hall was the largest building in the city, but it did not dominate the city nor dwarf it, the city easily digested it. Arriving in the city by train, the traveller, if he knew where to look, could just distinguish a bit of the town hall tower, amid masses of granite and brick, which glimpse symbolised the relation between the city and the town hall, and had its due effect on the midland conceit of George. But what impressed George more than the stout physical aspects of the city was the sense of its huge, adventurous, corporate life, continuous from century to century. It had known terrible battles, obstinate sieges, famines, cholera, a general conflagration, and in the 20th century, strikes that possibly were worse than pestilence. It had fiercely survived them all. It was a city passionate and highly vitalised. George had soon begun to be familiar with its organic existence from the inside. The amazing delays in the construction of the town hall were characteristic of the city, 
originating as they did, not from sloth or indecision, but from the obduracy of the human will. At the start, a sensational municipal election had put the whole project on the shelf for two years, and George had received a compensatory 1% on the estimated cost, according to contract, and had abandoned his hope. But the pertinacity of Mr Salter, first councillor, then alderman, then mayor, the true father of the town hall, had been victorious in the end. Next, there had been an infinity of trouble with owners of adjacent properties and with the foundations. Next to the local contractor, who got the work through a ruthless and ingenious conspiracy of associates on the council, had gone bankrupt. Next came the gigantic building strike, in which conflicting volitions fought each other for many months to the devastation of an entire group of trades. Finally, was the inflexible resolution of Mr Salter that the town hall should not be opened and used until it was finished in every part and every detail of furniture and decoration. George, by his frequent sojourns in the city and his official connection with the authorities, had several opportunities to observe the cabals, the chicane, and the personal animosities and friendships which functioned in secret at the very heart of the city's life. He knew the idiosyncrasies of councillors and aldermen in committee. He had learnt more about mankind at the committee rooms of the old town hall than he could have learnt in 10,000 London clubs. He could divide the city council infallibly into wire-pullers, axe-grinders, vain nincompoops, honest mediocrities, and the handful who combined honesty with sagacity and sagacity with strength. At beefy luncheon tables and in gorgeous stuffy bars tapestried with Lincruster Walton, he had listened to the innumerable tales of the town, in which greed, crookedness, ambition, rectitude, hatred and sexual love were extraordinarily mixed, the last being by far the smallest ingredient. He liked the town. He revelled in it. It seemed to him splendid in its ineradicable, ever-changing, changeless humanity. And as the train bored its way through the granite bowels of the city, he thought pleasurably upon all these matters. And with them in his mind, they gradually mingled the images of Lois and Marguerite. He cared not what their virtues were or what their faults were. He enjoyed reflecting upon them, picturing them with their contrasted attributes, following them into the future as they developed blindly under the unperceived sway of the paramount instincts which had impelled and would always impel them towards their ultimate destiny. He thought upon himself, and about himself he was very sturdily cheerful, because he had had a most satisfactory interview with Sir Isaac on the previous afternoon. A few minutes later he walked behind a portmanteau-bearing night porter into the wide corridored sleeping hotel, whose dust glittered in the straight shafts of early sunlight. He stopped at the big slate under the staircase, and wrote in chalk opposite the number 187, not to be called till twelve o'clock under pain of death. And the porter, a friend of some years standing, laughed. On the second floor, that same porter dropped the baggage on the linoleum and rattled the key in the lock with a high disregard of sleepers. In the bedroom, the porter undid the straps of the portmanteau, and then, Anything else, sir? That's all, John. As he turned to leave, John stopped and remarked in a tone of concern, Sorry to say, Alderman Salter's ill in bed, sir. Won't be able to come to the opening. It's him as will be madder than anybody, ill or not. George was shocked and almost frightened. In his opinion, the true intelligence of the city was embodied in Mr Salter. Mr Salter had been a father to him, had understood his aims and fought for them again and again. 
Without Mr. Salter, he felt defenceless before the ordeal of the opening, and he wished that he might fly back to London instantly. Nevertheless, the contact of the cool, clean sheets was exquisite, and he went to sleep at once, just as he was realising the extremity of his fatigue. He did not have his sleep out. Despite the menace of death, a courageous creature heavily knocked at his door at ten o'clock and entered. It was a page-boy with a telegram. George opened the envelope resentfully. No answer. The telegram read, I'm told we have got it. Ponting. Ponting was George's assistant. The news referred to a competition for an enormous barracks in India, one of the two competitions pending. It had come sooner than expected. Was it true? George was aware that Ponting had useful acquaintanceship with a clerk in the India office. He thought, trying not to believe, of course Ponting will swallow anything. But he made no attempt to sleep again. He was too elated. 5. Through a strange circumstance, George arrived late for the opening lunch in the lower hall, but he was late in grave company. He had been wandering aimlessly and quite alone about the great interiors of the town hall when he caught sight of Mr Phillips, the contractor, with the bishop and the most famous sporting peer of the north, a man who for some mystical reason was idolised by the masses of the city. Unfortunately, Mr Phillips also caught sight of George. Our bishop here is Mr Cannon, our architect. He'd be able to explain perhaps better. And in an instant, Mr Phillips had executed one of those feats of prestidigitation for which he was renowned in contracting circles, left George with the bishop, and gone off with his highly prized quarry, the sporting peer. George, despite much worldliness, had never before had speech with a bishop. However, the bishop played his part in a soothingly conventional way, manipulated his apron and his calves with senile dignity, stood still and gazed ardently at ceilings and vistas, and said at intervals explosively and hoarsely, Ha! Very interesting! Very interesting! Very fine! Very fine! Noble! He also put intelligent questions to the youthful architect, such as, How many bricks have been used in this building? He was very leisurely, as though the whole of eternity was his. I'm afraid we may be late for the luncheon, George ventured. The bishop looked at him blandly, leaning forward, and replied, after holding his mouth open for a moment, They will not begin without us. I say grace. His antique eyes twinkled. After this, George liked him and understood that he was really a bishop. In the immense hubbub of the lower hall, the bishop was seized upon by officials and conducted to a chair a few places to the right of his worship the mayor. Though there was considerable disorder and confusion, doubtless owing to the absence of Alderman Salter, who had held all the strings in his hand, everybody agreed that the luncheon scene in the lower hall was magnificent. The mayor, in his high chair and in his heavy chain and glittering robe, ruled in the centre of the principal table, from which lesser tables rang at right angles. The aldermen and councillors, also chained and robed, well sustained the brilliance of the mayor, and the ceremonial officials of the city surpassed both mayor and council in grandeur. Sundry peers and, and MPs and illustrious capitalists enhanced the array of renown, and the bishop was rivalled by priestly dignitaries scarcely less grandiose than himself. And then there were the women. The women had been let in. During ten years of familiarity with the city's life, George had hardly spoken to a woman, except Mr. Salter's Scotch half-sister. The men lived a life of their own, which often extended to the evenings, and very many of them, when mentioning women, 
employed a peculiar tone. But now the women were disclosed in bulk, and the display startled George. He suddenly saw all the city's fathers and their sons in a new light. The bishop had his appointed chair, with a fine feminine hat on either side of him, but George could not find that any particular chair had been appointed to himself. Eventually he saw an empty chair in the middle of a row of men at the right-hand transverse table, and he took it. He had expected, as the sole artistic creator of the town hall whose completion the gathering celebrated, to be the object of a great deal of curiosity at the luncheon. But in this expectation he was deceived. If any curiosity concerning him existed, it was admirably concealed. The authorities, however, had not entirely forgotten him, for the town clerk that morning had told him that he must reply to the toast of his health. He protested against the shortness of the notice, whereupon the town clerk had said casually that a few words would suffice, anything, in fact, and had hastened off. George was now getting nervous. He was afraid of hearing his own voice in that long, low interior which he had made. He had no desire to eat. He felt tired. Still, his case was less acute than it would have been had the august personage originally hoped for attended the luncheon. The august personage had not attended on account of an objection, apropos of an extreme passage in an election campaign speech, to the occupant of the mayoral chair, who had thus failed to be transformed into a Lord Mayor. The whole city had then, though the mayor was not overpopular, rallied to its representative, and the council had determined that the inauguration should be a purely municipal affair. The episode was characteristic. George heard a concert of laughter which echoed across the room. At the end of the main table, Mr. Phillips had become a centre of gaiety. Mr. Phillips, whom George and the clerk of works had had severe and constant difficulty in keeping reasonably near the narrow path of rectitude, was a merry, sharp, smart, middle-aged man with a skin that always looked as if it had just made use of an irritant soap. He was one of the largest contractors in England, and his name on the hoarding of any building in course of erection seemed to give distinction to that building. He was very rich and popular in municipal circles, and especially with certain councillors, including a Labour councillor. George wondered whether Mr. Phillips would make a speech. No toast list was visible in George's vicinity. To George, the meal seemed to pass with astounding celerity. The old bishop said grace in six words. The toastmaster bawled for silence. The health of all classes of society who could rely upon good doctors was proposed and heartily drunk. Princes, prelates, legislators, warriors, judges. But the catalogue was cut short before any eccentric person could propose the health of the one-roomed poor, of whom the city was excessively prolific. And then the mayor addressed himself to the great business of the town hall. George listened with throat dry. By way of precaution, he had drunk nothing during the meal, and at each toast he had merely raised the glass to his lips and infinitesimally sipped. The coffee was bad and cold and left a taste in his mouth, but everything that he had eaten left a taste in his mouth. The mayor began, My lords, ladies and gentlemen, during the building of this uh, structure, all his speech was in that manner and that key. Nevertheless, he was an able and strong individual, and, as an old trade union leader, could be fiercely eloquent with working men. He mentioned Alderman Salter, and there was a tremendous cheer. He did not mention Alderman Salter again. A feud burned between these two. 
After Alderman Salter he mentioned finance. He said that that was not the time to refer to finance, and then spoke of nothing else but finance throughout the remainder of his speech, until he came to the peroration. Success and prosperity to our new town hall, the grandest civic monument which any city has erected to itself in this country within living memory, aye, and beyond. The frantic applause atoned for the lack of attention and the semi-audible chattering which had marred the latter part of the interminable and sagacious harangue. George thought, Pardon me, the city has not erected this civic monument. I have erected it. And he thought upon all the labour he had put into it, and all the beauty and magnificence which he had evolved. Alderman Salter should have replied on behalf of the Town Hall Committee, and the Alderman who took his place apologised for his inability to fill the role, and said little. Then the Toastmaster bawled incomprehensibly for the twentieth time, and a councillor arose and in timid tone said, I rise to propose the toast of the architect and contractor. George was so astounded that he caught scarcely anything in the speech. It was incredible to him that he, the creative artist who was solely responsible for the architect and decoration of the monument, in whose unique mind it had existed long before the second brick had been placed upon the first, should be bracketed in a toast with the tradesman and middleman who merely supervised the execution of his scheme according to rules of thumb. He flushed. He wanted to walk out, but nobody else appeared to be disturbed. George, who had never before attended an inauguration, was simply not aware that the toast, architect and contractor, was the classic British toast, invariably drunk on such occasions and never criticised. He thought, what a country, and remembered hundreds of Mr Enright's remarks. Phrases of the orator wandered into his ear. The competition system. We went to Sir Hugh Corver, the head of the architectural profession. Loud applause. And Sir Hugh Corver assured us that the design of Mr George Cannon was the best. Hear, 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 hear. Mr Philip, head of the famous firm of Phillips Limited. Loud applause. Fortunate after our misfortune with the original contractor to obtain such a leading light. Cannot sufficiently thank these two uh, officials for the intellect, energy and patience they have put into their work. As the speech was concluding, a tactless man sitting next to George, with whom he had progressed very slowly in acquaintance during the lunch, leaned towards him and murmured in a confidential tone, Did I tell you both naval yards up here have just had orders to work day and night? Yes, fact. George's mind ran back to Mr Prince and Mr Prince's prophecy of war. Was there something in it, after all? The thought passed in an instant, for the last vestiges of his equanimity had gone. Hearing his name, he jumped up in a mist inhabited by inimical phantoms, and, amid feeble acclamations here and there, said he knew not what, in a voice now absurdly loud and now absurdly soft, and sat down, amid more feeble acclamations, feeling an angry fool. It was the most hideous experience. He lit a cigarette, his first that day. When Mr. Phillips rose, the warm clapping was expectant of good things. When I was a little boy, I remember my father telling me that this town hall had been started. I never expected to live to see it finished. Delighted guffaws, uproarious laughter, explosions of mirth, interrupted this witty reference to the delays in construction. The speaker smiled at ease. His eyes glinted. He knew his audience, held it consummately, and went on. 
In the afternoon there was a conversazione, or reception, for the lunchers, and also for the outer fringe of the city's solid respectability. The whole of the town hall, from basement to roof, was open to view, and citizens of all ages wandered in it everywhere, admiring it, quizzing it, and feeling proudly that it was theirs. George, too, wandered about, feeling that it was his. He was slowly recovering from the humiliation of the lunch. Much of the building pleased him greatly. At the excellence of some effects and details he marvelled. The entry into the large hall from the grand staircase was dramatic, just as he had intended it to should be. The organ was being played, and word went round that the acoustic, or acoustic, properties of the auditorium were perfect, and unrivalled by any auditorium in the kingdom. On the other hand, the crudity of certain other effects and details irritated the creator, helping him to perceive how much he had learnt in ten years. In ten years, for example, his ideas about mouldings had been quite transformed. What chiefly satisfied him was the demonstration everywhere that he had mastered his deep, natural impatience of minutiae, that instinct which is often so violently resented the exacting irksomeness of trifles in the realisation of a splendid idea. At intervals he met an acquaintance and talked, but nobody at all appeared to comprehend that he alone was the creator of the mighty pile, and that all the individuals present might be divided artistically into two classes, himself in one class, the entire remainder in the other. And nobody appeared to be inconvenienced by the sense of the height of his achievement or of the splendour of his triumph that day. It is true that the North hates to seem impressed, and will descend to any duplicity in order not to seem impressed. The town clerk's clerk came importantly up to him and asked, How many reserved seats would you like for the concert? A grand ballad concert at which the most sentimental of contraltos, helped by other first-class throats, was to minister wholesale to the insatiable secret sentimentality of the North, had been arranged for the evening. Uh, one will be enough, said George. Are you alone? asked the town clerk's clerk. George took the ticket. None of the city fathers or their fashionable sons had even invited him to dinner. He went forth and had tea alone, while reading in an evening paper about the Austro-Serbian situation in the tea-rooms attached to a cinema palace. The gorgeous rooms, throbbing to two-steps and foxtrots, were crammed with customers, but the waitresses behaved competently. Thence he drove out in a taxi to the residence of Alderman Sulter. He could see neither the Alderman nor Miss Sulter. He learnt that the condition of the patient was reassuring, and that the patient had a very good constitution. Back of the hotel, he had to wait for dinner. In due course, he ate the customary desolating table d'hote dinner, which is served simultaneously in the vast, odorous dining rooms, all furnished alike, of scores and scores of grand hotels throughout the provinces. Having filled his cigar case, he set out once more into the beautiful summer evening. In broad side-gate were massed the chief resorts of amusement. The façade of the Empire Music Hall glowed with great rubies and emeralds and amethysts and topazes in the fading light. Its lure was more powerful than the lure of the ballad concert. Ignoring his quasi-official duty to the greatest of sentimental contraltos, he pushed into the splendid foyer of the Empire. One solitary stall, half a crown, was left for the second house. He bought it, eager in transgression. He felt that the ballad concert would have sent him mad. 
The auditorium of the empire was far larger than the auditorium of the town hall, and it was covered with gold. The curving rows of plush-covered easy chairs extended backwards until faces became indistinguishable points in the smoke-misted gloom. Every seat was occupied. The ballad concert had made no impression upon the music hall. The same stars that he could see in London appeared on that gigantic stage in the same songs and monologues. And, as in London, the indispensable review was performed, but with a grosser and more direct licentiousness than the West End would have permitted. And all proceeded with inexorable exactitude according to timetable. And in scores and scores of similar empires, hippodromes, alhambras and pavilions throughout the provinces, similar entertainments were proceeding with the same exactitude. Another example of the huge standardisation of life. George laughed with the best at the inventive drollery of the knockabout comedians, Britain's sole genuine contribution to the art of the modern stage. But there were items in the Empire programme that were as awful in their tedium as anything at the ballad concert could be, moments when George could not bear to look over the footlights. And these items were applauded in ecstasy by the enchanted audience. He thought of the stupidity, the insensibility, the sheer ignorance of the exalted lunchers. And he compared them with these qualities in the Empire audience, and asked himself sardonically whether all artists had lived in vain. But the atmosphere of the Empire was comfortable, reassuring, inspiring. The men had their pipes, cigarettes and women. The women had their men, the luxury, the glitter, the publicity. They had attained. They were happy. The frightful curse of the provinces, ennui, had been conjured away by the beneficent and sublime institution invented, organised and controlled by three great trusts. George stayed till the end of the show. The emptying of the theatre was like a battle, like the flight of millions from a conflagration. All humanity seemed to be crowded into the corridors and staircases. Jostled and disordered, he emerged into the broad street, along which huge lighted trams slowly thundered. He walked a little, starting a fresh cigar. The multitude had resumed its calm. A few noisy men laughed and swore obscene oaths. And girls, either in couples or with men, trudged, demure and unshocked, past the roisterers, as though they had neither ears to hear nor eyes to see. In a few minutes the processions were dissipated, dissolved into the vastness of the city, and the pavements nearly deserted. George strolled on towards the square. The town hall stood up against the velvet pallor of the starry summer night, massive, lovely, supreme, deserted. He had conceived it in an office in Russell Square when he was a boy. And there it was, the mightiest monument of the city which had endured through centuries of astounding corporate adventure. He was overwhelmed, and he was inexpressibly triumphant. Throughout the day he had had no recognition, and as regards the future, few, while ignorantly admiring the monument, would give a thought to the artist. Books were eternally signed, and pictures and sculpture, but the architect was forgotten. What did it matter? If the creators of Gothic cathedrals had to accept oblivion, he might. The tower should be his signature. And no artist could imprint his influence so powerfully and so mysteriously upon the unconscious city as he was doing. 
and the planet was whirling the whole city round like an atom in the icy spaces between the stars. And perhaps Lois was lying expectant, discontented, upon the sofa, thinking rebelliously. He was filled with the realisation of universality. At the hotel, another telegram awaited him. Good old Ponting, he exclaimed after reading it. The message ran, We have won it, Ponting. He said, Why we, Ponting? You didn't win it. I won it. He said, Sir Hugh Corver is not going to be the head of the architectural profession. I am. He felt the assurance of that in his bones. End of part two, chapter one, part two.